Well, good morning, afternoon, evening, whatever it may be. Welcome back to the Simplifying Investing series, the podcast where we examine all the ways we invest in ourselves and the things that are important to us. If you're a returning listener, you may already know that in this series, we're taking a look at the big questions that shape our investments, our future, and our financial security. Now, I'm very excited to say that we have a special guest making his return to the podcast today. He's one of the country's most respected economists. In fact, he's AMP Capital's chief economist, Dr. Shane Oliver. Shane, pleasure to have you with us. Great to be back, Adam. Hope you're well. Very well. All the better for having you with us, Shane. So, listeners, Shane and I are going to take a look at the state of property in Australia, and this really is a timely issue. In fact, research from Moody's Investors Service has just found that housing affordability in Sydney alone is at its worst level in a decade. And for those in Melbourne, median house prices are creeping up towards the million dollar mark, sitting at more than $960,000 at the time of recording. So there's plenty for us to unpack for those looking to buy and for those who have already seen the benefits of the property market. But before we jump into today's topic, here's a quick reminder. This podcast is general in nature and hasn't taken your circumstances into account. It's important you consider your personal circumstances and speak to a financial advisor before deciding what's right for you. Any general tax information provided is intended as a guide only. So Shane, Australia's property market has created wealth for millions of Australians, but equally it's also a sore spot for some people, particularly those, as I said, who are looking to break into the market for the first time. Now, for as long as I can remember, so let's say the early 90s here, affordability has been a tricky topic. How did we get here and what has been driving the growth in house prices? That's a good question. Uh, it, it's it's a vexed issue because a big chunk of us already own a house or we are paying a house off. In fact, about two-thirds of uh, Australians live in houses uh, in that circumstance. Um, it's more of a problem, particularly for those who are struggling to get into the property market, and that's where affordability comes in. But, of course, it's also an issue for those who only got in recently and are finding themselves at very high debt levels. I think we all want our property prices to go up over time consistent with growth in the economy. But sometimes we overdo it a bit. And for the last 20 years, it's uh, certainly been overdone. Uh, going into the mid-1990s, I, I think Australian property, yes, there were issues with affordability, but often they were around interest rates being too high, not necessarily price um, levels being out of whack. And for a long time, the norm was pretty much that an average uh, property in Australia, residential property, was was worth around three times people's after-tax incomes. So, in other words, if you could contribute all of your after-tax income to buying a property, then it would take you three years to do so. But starting in the mid-90s, particularly the late 90s, going to the 2000s, that ratio blew out to the point in Sydney, for example. It's sort of up around 10 to 12 times in Melbourne, a little bit less than that. And then the national average is is around seven times. So we've come from a situation where we had affordability issues, but they were cyclical in nature. They'd come and go to one where we've gone into a chronic uh, affordability uh, problem, uh, which basically means people have to take on a massive amount of debt to get into the property market. Um, That's come around for a bunch of reasons. Obviously, we've moved into a world of very low interest rates. Uh, I think back uh, 30 years ago, Prior to the early 90s recession, the mortgage rate at that point in time was around 17%, and then it's progressively come down to recent lows around 2%, uh, particularly for fixed rates. So that has enabled people to borrow more money uh, and therefore pay up more for housing. 
normally there'd be an, a response to that from increased supply, but in Australia we haven't seen an adequate response. We have in other countries, you know, they have interest rates as low as we do as well, in some countries lower, but their affordability is not nearly as bad in most cases, uh, particularly if you exclude, say, Canada and New Zealand, their are extremes like Australia, but other countries, much of Europe, US, much of the US is far more affordable than Australia is. But we have a, a reason behind that is we haven't had an adequate supply response. We've had lots of population growth until recently, uh, but it hasn't been matched by adequate supply. And then I guess there's a whole bunch of other reasons which you could point to. Maybe Australian properties become more speculative. The tax system perhaps encourages that to some degree. At times, you know, we've we've uh, enabled uh, foreign buyers to come in with big pockets and pay more than perhaps they should um, or have be able to pay more than local borrow, buyers could pay. Uh, all those things have impacted, but I think the really big issues have been shift to very low interest rates and inadequate, inadequate supply. And just, I guess, showing how tough that squeeze is on the people who are looking to jump in for the first time, there was some core logic data recently that showed those property prices have jumped. I think the figure was around 20% in the past year alone. And as we kind of touched on there, low mortgage rates, buyer incentives, tight jobs market all play a part in this. They do say nothing lasts forever. But for those who are trying to break in, it might feel like this affordability issue is somewhat eternal. And I guess in your mind, how sustainable is this price and growth? Well, I, I don't think uh, 20% uh, price growth is sustainable. Uh, if you think over the same period, wages grow, wages have gone up by less than 2%. So there's something wrong with that. It won't be, it won't be sustained. <laughs> now, admittedly, we've come from a, a bit of a dip at the time of the pandemic. Uh, the initial pandemic, we had the lockdowns and that saw prices come off a little bit nationwide uh, just over a year ago, and we've had a bounce out of that. So that's to be expected. But still, uh, the problem is that prices are at record highs in six of the eight capital cities, uh, and they're well above their, their previous highs, particularly in Sydney and Melbourne, for you know, which were in 2017. So th- this is the basic problem. Uh, and of course, it shows up in poor affordability. Uh, I-, I would suspect that over a very long term, a sustainable rate of increase in Australian prices is something more akin to the rate of increase in incomes. Uh, historically, the average price gain in residential property across Australia has been for real price increases. This is over and above the inflation rate of around 3%. So if you're assuming a, say, 2.5% sustained inflation rate, that's the Reserve Bank's target, then uh, sustained increase in prices, a sustainable increase in prices would be around 5.5% per annum. So that's where we should be. Um, only problem is if you start that now, we're still coming off very, very high levels. Uh, so it would, I mean, to improve the affordability situation, you really need, I think, several years where house prices are range-bound. Um, some people might say, well, we need a collapse in house prices, but I'd be careful what you wish for on that front because mm. if prices collapse, it usually means the economy collapses as well yep. and uh, people will be out of jobs. So the best way to solve this problem would be to have several years, five, say five, ten years of house prices being range bound and then sort of just go up more in line with incomes. That I think would help uh, solve the affordability problem. But to get to that point is the big challenge. Yeah. And and I guess I'd be interested to know how the growth in the property market compares to say other investments, let's say, you know, shares, for example. To be honest with you, it's fairly similar. Uh, and if, if you're looking at this from a, a purely investment point of view, it argues the case that you should have 
property in your investment portfolio, just like you should have shares. So historically, if you go back to say, I've got property price data and returns back to 1926, uh, over that period, which is almost 100 years, just less, 95 years, uh, you know, cash has typically returned about 4%. Bit hard to get uh, that out of cash at the moment, given where interest rates are. Uh, government bonds have typically returned about six percent, but uh, property—that's residential property and shares—have returned somewhere, but you know, around eleven percent, give or take a little bit per annum, and that includes capital growth in the value of the share or property uh, and also rental income or dividend income in the case of shares being reinvested along the way. So it's a total return. So that, that would tell us that if you're prepared to take on a bit of risk because obviously property prices can be more volatile than than money in the bank. Likewise, with share prices, they're a lot more volatile. If you can be prepared to take on a bit of risk, then you should have uh, property and shares in your portfolio, which of course many people do via their superannuation or via the family home. But at times, uh, sometimes assets get ahead of themselves. And of course, the problem with property is that it's not only an asset, but it's also something that people live in and that therein lies the challenge you know, that investors would say, well, we've done pretty well out of this. Uh, but if you're a millennial mm. uh, or a Gen Z uh, trying to get into the property market, you'd say, well, well and good for you, but what about us? <laughs> We're missing out here. Um, if we do get in, if we do uh, uh, yeah, put aside the jokes about smashed avocado on toast and uh, as delicious as it is <laughs> as delicious as it is and i can tell you i'm a baby boomer and i love it too avocado is <laughs> one of my favorite foods and it has been out of interest for the last 50 years but um i i reckon that it's a bit unfair that people of generations behind me are struggling to get into the property market and then when they do get in you know when you go to your bank and you find that with a bit of money from the bank of mum and dad and bank itself you know you can get in you find yourself with a million dollar mortgage perhaps mm. um and you think oh gee how am i going to pay that down um low interest rates are well and good but you've got this massive um massive amount of debt and i i kind of think that's a little bit it, it, things have been pushed a little bit too far in favor of existing homeowners and against um those trying to get in but the, the real challenge is well how do we res- resolve this issue how do we bring about improved affordability without crashing the economy in the process. Yeah, and look, I've been doing some of the reading of, of some of your recent writing, and it's it's a topic that you've touched on a little bit, and no one has a crystal ball, but if you were to try and cast ahead and, and think about how close we are to seeing the end of the 25-year bull market in property prices, what would you say to that? Look, I'd say we are close to the end of it. If, if, if Look, just put things in perspective here. Go back over the last 95 years, back to that 1926 number that I referred to earlier. <sighs> simply because that's as far back as I've got property price data and total return data for property, uh, we see three waves. Um, so you've got a long-term trend where prices, property prices go up in real terms over time at the rate of about 3% per annum, which is in line with real growth in the economy. Uh, so that's well and good. Uh, but occasionally, we've had these periods where property price gains have been well above that in the 1920s, roaring 20s that continued into the 30s, but then fell apart with the Great Depression and World War II. In fact, property prices crashed to their ultimate low in World War II, I think, when the midget subs got into Sydney Harbour and all the people in the eastern suburbs mm. decided, we don't want to be here anymore, and they moved out to Barrel or thereabouts. Mm. Uh, so that was the low. And then, of course, we had the post-war boom, which saw another surge in property prices relative to their long-term trend that was built on very high immigration levels compared to the population at the time, 
consumerism, the industrialization of the economy, suburbanization, all that sort of stuff. Fantastic. And then that took us to a point where property was well above trend into the 1970s and we had the malaise of the 1970s and ultimately very high interest rates and that led to a tougher time. Bit of a spurt in the late 80s, but this third wave we've been in started, I think, in the mid-90s. So that's the 25-year bull market we've been in. Uh, If you think about the drivers of that, very low interest rates, I think that's getting close to the bottom. And I don't just mean cyclically, I mean in a long-term sense. You know, it's hard to see interest rates having another fall from, well, they can't go from 17% to 2%. They've already done that. (laughs) We're scraping the bottom of the barrel. There's no more water left in the pool. There's nothing left. We're at the bottom. And, uh, of course, so that could remove a source of increased purchasing power. If If interest rates stop going down year after year or cycle after cycle and you keep making new lower interest rates, then eventually people can't you know, keep borrowing more and more to buy a house, can't keep paying each other more and more to buy houses. Second factor is that I think the pandemic showed us uh, that we don't have to live in cities. And maybe this has been a factor behind the deterioration of affordability. We have six big capital cities or big-ish capital cities. We concentrate everyone in them. We're one of the most urbanised countries in the world. And when you tend to have a lot of people jammed into cities and then put barriers around their borders with national parks and mountains and things, uh, and they're on the coast, then you, you tend to have relatively expensive housing. So that could be another factor in, in the mix here. But if the pandemic allows us to live more in suburbia, live more in the regions and still work, you know, maybe we go into the office uh, two days a week, not five, then you perhaps a bit more prepared to put up with the commute, um, that could spread uh, housing demand more equally across the country and be a boost to regional Australia and at the same time take pressure off city property prices. Uh, so that's something I think the pandemic has shown is possible. The question is whether it's a permanent phenomenon, and I tend to think it probably is. Of course, if you're living in a regional city in the centre or hearing this, you think, oh, no, we're going to be overwhelmed with people as well. Well, I reckon... Yeah, with a bit of planning, you can solve that. Just make it easier for regional centres to um, get land released for housing and make sure we supply the, the the housing for people who want to live there. That's the thing to do. Make sure the infrastructure is there. The final point, which you could argue, and this one's starting to fray a little bit at the edges, given a new Premier in New South Wales, that is uh, immigration. We've had a bit of a pause on immigration. That's given the property market a bit of breathing space. Property prices kept going up anyway because I think everyone was so concerned that if they don't get in, they'll miss out. Yeah, um, the FOMO concept, right? The FOMO concept. But if we, uh, say, gone through the last couple of years, we've continued to build houses at a reasonable clip uh, and eventually that will take us from a point of being undersupplied to a point of oversupplied um, because we haven't had the people coming into the country to go into immigration. Immigrants haven't come in. So if we can manage the return of immigrants on a more rational basis, I love immigrants. Mm. The key is, I think, to manage that process a little bit better. If we're going to have a return to high numbers, make sure we do it on a sustainable basis relative to the ability of the property market to supply new housing. And we haven't done that in the last Mm. decade or so. So that, I think, is key. But that 
pandemic has given us a bit of a breather on that front to perhaps get that thing right. Now, of course, if we go straight back to big Australia and say, oh, we're going to have a catch up here, we've missed out on uh, 500,000 immigrants, we'll let them all in straight away or do, do it very quickly, then we could be back in trouble. Um, hopefully, common sense will prevail and we'll, and we'll do it gradually. Definitely got room to take stock now at a government policy level, that's for sure. Um, Shane, I want to uh, just shift focus slightly for a second because we've covered off, I guess, the some of the concerns that would be impacting Gen Y and, and Gen Z. But I guess for those Australians who are nearing or now entering retirement, there's a good chance that they may have accumulated property wealth either through, say, their family home and or investment properties. What are the things that they should be thinking about in the context of their financial planning and retirement? Well, I, I guess the key is to, I mean, this is a bit of a problem in Australia that people um, move into retirement and then stay in the family home. You could argue, well, maybe they should move out once you become an empty nester and free that up for people who need it. Of course, the tax system works against it because if you then get into another property, you face a huge stamp duty bill. So mm -hmm. maybe there's a case to reform stamp duty such that people don't have those exorbitant costs, which which dissuades people from selling uh, once they become nesters when they otherwise would. But an obvious thing to think about in this context is, uh, you know, how much wealth you've got tied up in the value of the family home. Um, do you need all that extra space? Could you use some of that uh, wealth or free some of that wealth up uh, to, to partly fund retirement? I mean, this is one of the things that many Australians, you know, baby boomer and, and then Gen X will find, you know, the property prices are so high that they're sitting on a huge pool of wealth, but um, they may not get the benefit of it unless they, they sell it. Um, and downsize to some degree. So that, they're things to think about. You know, what is the best way to structure their retirement? Um, obviously, if you've got enough in superannuation and other savings, it's perhaps not an issue. But for many Australians sitting on this huge pot of wealth, it is worth considering the various options to um, un unpack that wealth, if you like, and then take advantage of it in retirement years. Well, while we're on the topic of wealth, let's discuss wealth transfer. What I'm talking about here is the intergenerational inheritance that some Australians will see. Shane, a, a McCrindle research paper from 2016 suggests that Australia's Gen X and Gen Y will see the transfer of around $3.5 trillion in wealth from the builder generation. So that's what they refer to as those who were born between 1925 and 1945 and the baby boomer generation, as mentioned. So that's the latter being those who were born between 1946 and 1964. Now, listeners, stay with me. I've got a few figures here, but these numbers indicate that with around, say, 7.5 million children and around 70% of wealth being transferred, each child would receive around $320,000 on average. So, Shane, what do you think the impact of this will be in terms of number one, property market access, and number two, an Australian's ability to retire comfortably? Well, they're very big numbers, so it has a potentially very large impact. I guess the one thing we need to think about is that that wealth transfer invariably occurs in the unfortunate death of uh, one's parents passing away. Um, therein lies the complication. On the one hand, you know, you can you've got this future wealth that you will find uh, coming from your parents. But on the other hand, people are living longer and longer, which I think is a great thing, mm. fantastic thing, in fact. Mm. Um, I certainly don't want my mother to 
to pass away anytime soon. Yeah. And I think most Australians will want that. But then you find yourself where you're you're taking a lot of, on a lot of debt when you're younger in life, but then you may not get that that wealth transfer until you're in your 60s or maybe even 70s. Uh, so it doesn't necessarily help up front. It may ultimately help. Um, you know, after you've retired to pay off debt, mm. um, but that's a long way off into the future. The other aspect, I guess, is that we can't really rely on that to, to solve the affordability problem. It's a bit like baby boomers saying, oh, you've got nothing to complain about. Interest rates today are so low, I had to pay 17% or something like that. Mm. There's a flaw in that argument. There's also a flaw in the argument to say, oh, well, don't worry about it. You'll get this huge inheritance uh, um, when I pass on. The, but the problem is it comes much later in life. And in the meantime, you've got all the stress and strain that comes with that huge amount of debt you've got to take on. I think that the, 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 the real issue is we have to solve this problem uh, so it's easier for people when they're getting in in their mid-20s or into their early 30s. That's when they, they need the help. But traditional ways of providing that help haven't really helped that much, i.e. we can't just give a government cash handout that just tends to push up prices and benefit the baby boomers and the <laughs> and the, the Generation X people yeah. and the generation above that. So it's a, it's a complicated problem. Um, yes, that cash transfer will be welcomed, um, but by the same token, it, uh, it doesn't solve the housing problem at a time when people need the money. And Shane, I'm, I'm curious to know your thoughts on, an, on another part of this, and that's specifically property wealth. I'm, I'm curious to know whether Australians can actually build property wealth outside of a residential property. There is, of course, the option to invest as part of a property trust. So listeners, in case this is a new concept, this is where you would invest in or hold part ownership of property that may not necessarily be available to you as an individual. Shane, w- what is the merit of this or other similar syndicates? Yeah, there are lots of ways of doing it. Obviously, we all know about investing in residential property uh, and getting the benefits of negative gearing and the long-term returns that uh, residential property provides. Uh, Of course, uh, you know, that does uh, entail chunks of money um, to get into the residential property market. It requires a bit more upfront than it used to, (laughs) so it's become more, more expensive for investors. But there are other ways of doing it in smaller bites. If you look historically... We have had similar returns from commercial property uh, and there are vehicles listed on the share market or stocks listed on the share market that do give exposure to residential property as well. And you referred to property trust there. A property trust is basically a company that uh, invests in property um, and, of course, it collects the returns from property and then passes them on as distributions to the investors in the trust. Um, Typically, those trusts have been, uh, I I guess, um, focused on commercial property. You think of a a GPT in Westfield, which I think were the first. In fact, Australia is where this whole uh, sector started. Mm -hmm. Uh, It goes back to the 1970s. Uh, I can't remember which one was the first. Was it Westfield or GPT or was one of those two? But uh, so it goes back a long way. Um, And what it does is gives you a benefit or exposure to a whole range of properties. Um, the bulk of them can be commercial, retail, office, industrial. Um, but increasingly, we are seeing several property trusts listed on the share market, which also do um, expo- have exposure to residential property, like a Stockland, for example, would have that exposure. And now what we're seeing increasingly is um, vehicles which pull them all together. So you're going to get exposure to not just one company, 
investing in property, whether it's residential, industrial, uh, or retail or office, um, but a range of them. And obviously, there's managed funds which do that. Um, but I think there's also uh, vehicles on the share market which will give you exposure to a broad range of listed property trusts. So what it is is a, is a vehicle that you're effectively going in with a pool of lots of other investors via the share market. So it's it's relatively liquid, unlike a purchase where you invest in um, directly invest in property, where it can take you months to buy or sell. Um, but it provides you similar returns over long periods of time that you would otherwise get from the property market. And buying property through superannuation is something that I've noticed has become quite popular in recent years. I think some 2018 data from the Financial Services Council showed that two in every five self-managed super funds own property and almost a quarter of all SMSFs own a residential property. So, Shane, what is your take on this? Is is super a good way to boost your exposure to property? Look, it, it is a way of doing it. Traditionally, when you think of super, you think of uh, investment in shares and other financial assets, and they have the benefit of liquidity. But then with the growth of the self-managed superannuation system, uh, that has seen uh, many of those funds, and these are individual funds for the benefit of, of individuals. They're not funds run by um, uh, uh, commercial providers, uh, you've seen increasing exposure to um, to property. Uh, sometimes, I guess, that might have been, you know, a small business. Business uh, people would have their own superannuation trust separately managed as SMSF, and it might invest in the building which houses that business. It might own the, own the building. Um, but you can also do that via residential property. So it's certainly an option. I think the key when thinking about all of these things is to make sure you've got a well-diversified portfolio. Don't have all your eggs in one basket. I mean, there is always a little bit of risk there that if you allocate a, a disproportionate share of your SMSF fund to a property, then you're heavily exposed to just one asset. And if something goes wrong with it, uh, for whatever reason, um, you know, less commercial demand if it's commercial property or vacancy factor or um, you know, the area falls out of fashion, <laughs> then uh, then that's not that can lead to a bit of pain to get out of that. I mean, on average, it will work out okay, but uh, yeah, there is a downside to this. And then, if, unless you've got a lot of money, um, you may find yourself fairly narrowly exposed. Whereas when you're at least invested in the share market, you can be more broadly exposed across sectors and across companies, which gives you a degree of protection because you're diverse, diversified. If one of the the shares in your portfolio go go under, you've got lots of other shares in there to provide uh, provide an offset. Diversifying, I think that was the the key point from one of our last podcast conversations. I remember that I remember that word being used quite a fair bit, and I think it's just as relevant now as it was back then. So, uh, and look, honestly, Australia's property market certainly appears to be not short on talking points, but we have unfortunately run out of time for today. So Shane, thank you for sharing your expertise with us. I'm pleased to say that Shane will be back in our next episode of the Simplifying Investing series, where we will discuss another topic that's been making waves in recent times. I am, of course, talking about cryptocurrency, so I hope you can join us for that episode. Now, before we leave you, a reminder that any of the topics discussed today are general in nature, and they haven't taken your personal circumstances into account. So that's why it's important to always seek out tailored financial advice that's relevant to your personal circumstances before making any important financial decisions.